1977, someone I knew from school, the school I'd just left, started to work in the weaving mill that I'd recently got a job at. Although I knew him at school, we didn't have the same social group of friends, but finding ourselves at the same place of work, we struck up a friendship. And for a couple of years, we did some crazy things together. After a while, I noticed a change in him. One evening shift, sat under a dirty, oily loom. He began to talk to me about being saved and needing a savior. I hated that conversation. It unsettled me. As much as I hated it, I didn't hate him. I grew to respect his point of view. We had many deep conversations. And through them all, he kept pointing me to Jesus. Cut a long story short, I won't keep you here with my testimony forever. Because it does go on. Just look at the internet and you'll see it. Eighteen months later, I knew I needed a savior because I knew my heart was black. We stayed good friends till he died just over two years ago. My friend's name was Gary Hilton. He introduced me to Jesus. Gary was what I call an Andrew. An Andrew. Because like Andrew, Gary worked best in one-to-one -one relationships and conversations. He witnessed with countless people. He could identify with people and know how to direct a conversation that would lead people to Jesus. By and, by and large, that's what the apostles did. We thought about the role of an apostle before, but basically they were to defend define and declare the most glorious message of good news human ears could ever hear. Surprisingly, they were just common men. Not afforded the opportunities of a good education. Whatever we say about these men, no one can deny that just 12 men changed the course of history, world history. 12 uneducated men, 
None of them had any stature or prominence in economics or politics or religion. Yet they were used by God to quite literally change the world. Overseeing the writing of the New Testament established in the Old Testament. Our faith today based upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. Based on the truth they taught, which became the doctrine of the New Testament that you hold in your hands this morning. Twelve ordinary men. They all had very different personalities and characters. And we thought about Peter last time. And some of his flaws, some of his weaknesses and his strengths too. But this morning we're going to look briefly at Andrew. And see what we can learn about him. He is known as Peter's brother. You can't fail to miss that. Nearly every time Andrew is mentioned, it's with the footnote. Andrew, Peter's brother. Or Peter's brother Andrew. It's almost as if Andrew doesn't have an identity of his own. He's a background kind of guy. It can't have been easy being Peter's brother. Brothers can be quite competitive. We have a few of them here. Peter was always jumping in first, pipping him at the post. It's what brothers seek to do, isn't it? Andrew, all too often, was under the radar. But being a background guy doesn't mean what he did wasn't important. Other than the lists of the disciples we have in the New Testament, we first read of Andrew in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 35 to 40. If you want to turn to it, it might be helpful. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, again, John, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, two of John's disciples. And he looked at Jesus, and he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So these two disciples left John the Baptist and followed Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Where 
Are you staying? In other words, we want to stay with you. He said to them, come, and you will see. So they came, and they saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour, which is about four o'clock. So we know that these two disciples have been listening to the message of John the Baptist with great interest. They must have been devout men, serious about the things regarding the Messiah, and that they were prepared to stay with and follow Jesus. Now verse 40 says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. So now we know that Andrew was one of the two disciples. And we know that Andrew was one of the first disciples to be a follower of Jesus. But it's what happens next that's its significant. Verse 41. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. It was Andrew who brought his brother, Peter, to Jesus. The first thing he wanted to do, having found Jesus himself, was to find his brother and tell him. This indicates to us that both Andrew and Peter were both devout men, seekers of the Messiah, seekers of truth. And having found it, the first thing Andrew wanted to do was bring his brother to meet Jesus. Of all the rivalry there is between brothers. Who can be first to do this? Who can be first to do that? No such thing with Andrew. Not at all. He was very humbly. Very directly. Determined. To bring his brother. To meet Jesus. There's a lot of pride between brothers. But there's no room for pride here. If ever there was a human emotion that prevented people and that prevents people coming to meet Jesus, this pride issue comes top. Top of the list. How many times have people wanted to know more and wanted to know Christ even, but their pride won't let them? When the Apostle Paul brought, was brought before King Agrippa in Acts 26, Paul made his defense in a very compelling way. If King Agrippa believed 
that what the prophet said about the Messiah and could apply the logic of Paul's testimony, then the only real conclusion that Paul could come to, having heard Paul speak truth and reason, was that the prophecies of the Messiah are fulfilled in Christ. That's all he could really conclude. He must be risen. Christianity must be true. The Christian religion is true. And Paul's defense was true. It was reasoned, it was powerful, it was compelling. Agrippa could not reason any longer, but resorted to say, in verse 28, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. That's what he said. King Agrippa, you almost persuade me to become a Christian, in short. Wow, what you said was powerful. It makes so much sense. I just can't do it. I just can't become a Christian. He couldn't dispute anything Paul was saying. He'd run out of reasoning. The only thing that stopped him embracing Christianity was his pride. He'd lose his position. He'd lose his status, his high approval of others. You almost persuaded me to become a Christian. It wasn't that truth couldn't be found. It was there. He just couldn't be persuaded of it. How very, very, very sad. And yet that pride, that same pride, is in every one of us. How many people can you think of who have almost been persuaded to become Christians? They've been convinced of the truth. They know they really should become Christians, but the only reason they won't is because of pride. What others might think of them, the reputation they might lose, how desperately sad. And for most the reputation they think they have is disillusional anyway. No such pride here between these two brothers. The first thing Andrew did, the first thing he thought, I've got to tell Peter. I've got to bring him to Jesus. Then there's an incident at the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. Just flick over to John 6. It's called the feeding of the 5,000 because there were 5,000 men that were present there. Matthew clearly states in his record, besides women and children. 5,000 men besides women and children. So including their wives and possibly other women too. Possibly add another three or four thousand. 
And let's include the children too. Add another two or three thousand. We're still on the conservative side there, but potentially you've got 12,000 people, possibly more, needing food. Halfway up a mountain with nowhere to go. It was late in the day. Being so far from anywhere that facilitated food, this was a social crisis. What was going to happen? Well, suggestion one, Matthew and Mark tell us the disciples' first suggestion is to send them away. 12,000 people, just send them away. Send them to the surrounding villages. Hopefully they'll be able to get something there. Just get rid of the problem here. Wash your hands of this issue. Not your problem. Hmm. Suggestion one from the disciples. Suggestion two. Jesus asked Philip, verse five, where are we to buy bread, Philip, so that these people may eat? Oh, brilliant. Philip's going to have a good answer. Let's see what Philip comes up with. He must have a great idea, but he's thinking about the cost. What it's all going to cost. Philip answered him, 200 denarios worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even a little. It's about 40,000 pounds. Wouldn't even scratch the surface of what would be needed. Basically, Philip said, it's going to cost too much. How many opportunities for the gospel have been lost or wasted because it was thought to cost too much? Maybe not financially. Too much personal sacrifice. Well, let's not blame Philip here. He wasn't the only one saying that. All the other disciples had very much similar thinking. He was just the spokesperson. So no real answer here in suggestion two. Send them all away. Oh, it's going to cost too much. Very earthy. Suggestion three. A little boy's lunch. Two fish and five barley cakes. In the great scheme of things, that's a bit of a pathetic suggestion, isn't it? What on earth would that achieve? A pitiful suggestion, but the little boy didn't think so. That was everything he had. And he was willing to give it all to Jesus. It's amazing what Jesus can do with so little, isn't it? Real miracles are done when we are both feet in. When we give everything we've got 
to Jesus. Thousands are fed by Christ with a little boy and his lunch. All he had. But here's the point. Where did the little boy come from? It was Andrew who brought him to Jesus. Whilst Philip was weighing up the cost and the rest of the disciples were hoping the problem would all go away, Andrew is amongst the people bringing them to Jesus. He didn't have the answer or the solution. But he knew who did. Because Andrew was a people's man. Do we bring people to Jesus? Do we? How is your testimony? How is the reality of what we say we believe really working itself out? Amongst the people we engage in? Are we really committed to what we say we believe? Sometimes all we can do is bring them to Jesus in prayer. But sometimes it's the hardest thing. To leave them. With one. Who can help them. Bringing people to Jesus. In prayer. Is one thing. Leaving them in his care is another. Andrew is also mentioned towards the end of Jesus' public ministry in John 12, 20 to 26. It is the time of the Passover. Verse 20 says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. And in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless the grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. This was the moment that seemed to be a trigger. It was when Jesus heard that Greeks, that Gentiles, sought him. As soon as Jesus heard that, 
The hour has come, he says, that the Son of Man must be glorified. This Passover would be the very significant Passover of all time. Jesus himself would be the Passover lamb. The lamb of God, John the Baptist spoke of three years ago. This was the hour where the whole reason for Jesus coming into our world was coming to its climax. In that Christ the Redeemer came to bear away the sins of his people in his own body. The hour has come. You would think, he would say, the hour has come that the Son of Man might be crucified. But Jesus sees more than the cross. He sees the glory is the cross. That's where the purchase of the redemption of his people was paid. Right there. One people, his people. One commentator, one commentator says, the disciples being the first fruits of the Jews, the Greeks being the first fruits of the Gentiles. The hour has come. One people. His people. He's going to pay for. Jesus could see that this was the moment that set the ball rolling for sealing the salvation of his people. The hour has come. Gentiles, Greeks, seeking Jesus. They first spoke to Philip. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Actually, this was an unusual thing. Greeks wanting to see Jesus in this particular respectful manner. Though Gentiles will be accustomed to these feasts, which cause certain interests, some of them will be genuine. But this request was more intense more fervent, more desirous, more sincere. This flummoxed Philip, confused him. The first thing Philip did was go to Andrew, the people man, and see what Andrew thought. Andrew, being the bringer of people to Jesus, knew what to do. He knew what to do with somebody who was seeking Jesus. Andrew knew that this was what Jesus would want. Philip was a bit muzzy about that, wasn't he? Is this really right? Is this the right thing to do? Better just check this out. Andrew knew what Jesus would want because he knew the heart of Jesus. If Andrew knew anything, it was that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Maybe he knew 
that there was no difference between Jew and Gentile. Maybe he knew that. We all get caught up with differences, don't we? Should we say anything? Should I mention Jesus here? Perhaps not. Might just be a bit out of kilter. Might not be quite what is needed. We have to be sensitive to these things, don't we? But how often is it used as an excuse to let opportunities pass us by over and over and over again? Maybe Andrew knew a little bit more than Philip on that. Maybe Andrew knew that God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How much do we really know the heart of Jesus? And if we do, if we say we do, how much does it show? So, Andrew and Philip went to Jesus. We're not told whether they, whether these Greeks came with them or that Jesus did actually talk with them. But the indication is that he did. He certainly didn't reject them. The following words of Jesus, the hour has come that the Son of Man might be glorified, strongly indicates that Jesus had in mind the whole purpose of his coming was to bring sinners to himself, those who were lost. That he was the saviour of the world and not just the redeemer of Israel. But what is it to us whether Jesus speaks to someone or not? There's nothing we can do at that point. We bring them to Jesus and we leave them with Jesus and we can't do anything else. The job we have is the same as Andrew's. We bring them to Jesus and let him do the rest. Andrew, a people's person, a mingler among people. He had a missionary heart. No prejudice. No racial hang-ups. Culturally, that wasn't the norm. Jews and Gentiles did not mix at all. Andrew brought Gentiles to Jesus. Andrew had faith. Philip failed the test, didn't he? Where will we get bread, Philip, to feed these thousands of people? Philip had no idea, and neither did the rest of them. Andrew didn't know either. But he brought a little boy with his lunch. 
Normally that would have been considered a joke. He knew that if he brought what he had for Jesus to use, Jesus would do the rest. He would have the answer. He wasn't one for just sitting there, shrugging his shoulders and saying, oh, well, I'm sure it'll all work out in the end. If we ignore it long enough, it'll sort itself out. Andrew was both feet in. He made it happen. He had meekness. Meekness is that ability, that grace to accept God's purpose in his life. The ability to accept his own limitations. To accept what he couldn't do and what he couldn't be. It can't have been easy being Peter's brother, the outspoken one, the leader. Andrew didn't have those gifts. He couldn't speak to the multitudes and 3,000 of them get saved in one go. Like his brother Peter. But he could speak to one and watch Jesus do the rest. You need meekness to have Peter as your brother. Humility too. He could have taken the high road of pride, couldn't he? I found Jesus before Peter did. He could have kept that to himself, basking and gloating. That he's been staying with the Messiah. But no, he humbly brought his brother to share in the joy of meeting Jesus. Humble always stayed in the shadow of his brother, under the radar. The name that rings out, or those names that ring out in the Gospels, are Peter and the other two brothers, James and John. Who did Jesus Choose to go up the mountain and see his transfiguration. Peter, James and John. Where's Andrew? When Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, he only permitted Peter, James and John in the house with him. When Jesus was deeply troubled and distressed... Who did he take into the Garden of Gethsemane with him? Peter, James and John. It's they who are described as the pillars of the church, not Andrew. He was just a humble stone in the great architecture of Christ's work. Always in the background, never prominent, content to be unnoticed. How do you find not getting a pat on the back 
not getting the recognition for what you do. How do you find it? I guess I find it difficult. So I do expect everybody to come and shake my hand when I'm finished and say, well done, Rob, that was really good. No, I don't expect that. But it's in us all, isn't it? All those who are Peters need Andrews. Those who are not self-seeking, not looking for the praise, not looking for the glory. Modern day Christianity seems to struggle when it comes to the body ministry. Members of the body, as Paul describes, each member taking its part, taking its function, one an eye, one an ear, one an arm, one a foot, all blending together. The problem with modern evangelicalism is everyone wants to be a mouth. Everyone wants to have an opinion, and if my opinion isn't recognized, isn't taken, then I'm offended. My opinion is valid. Offense is caused when my opinion is not preferred. No one likes to be in the shadow of another. But I guess some churches have the other problem. Everyone wants to be as far under the radar as possible. They don't want to be seen. They don't want to be noticed. They might put half a foot in at some point. They don't really want to do anything. They don't want to put in their contribution. Not Andrew. He was ready to serve with a humble heart, doing what he could do, mingling with people. He served in the background, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. He was more concerned about bringing people to Jesus than being seen to do it. You never see Andrew looking for prominence or honor. All we read of when Andrew is dealing with anything is that he is bringing people to Jesus. That's all we ever read of him. Nothing else there other than the fact that he's tagged on to being Peter's brother. But be sure of this. When you get to heaven, his name will be there, inscribed on one of the 12 foundations. He'll be there. For all eternity, Jesus will give him prominence. Was it not his brother who said, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, for he will lift you up in due time? 
It may not be here in this life that you are raised. But be sure, you will be in the next. When Jesus takes someone on, his job through the Spirit is to make us like him. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality to be equal with God. Something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took upon him the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And you know the rest. Are we really happy at being made like Jesus? Are we really happy about that? Or is that irksome for us? It's not easy to become a servant, to become nothing, to be under the radar all the time. Tradition tells us, not, not what the Bible says, but reliable sources of historians. Tradition tells us, this is what it says, that Andrew led a woman to Christ. She was the wife of a Roman governor, Agius. Agius was not pleased about his wife's conversion. He demanded that she recant her devolution to Christ and that Andrew stop proclaiming this message. She refused and Andrew continued. He was so furious about that that he had Andrew crucified. Andrew requested an X-shaped cross as he felt unworthy to die on an upright one as his saviour, Jesus. Apparently, Andrew died on the 30th of November, AD 60. A bringer of people to Jesus. That's what we need to be. Gary introduced many people to Jesus. Not all of them received Jesus as Savior. One of them that did was a jumped up show off with no qualifications and a proud heart and an attitude that just rubbed people up the wrong way. Jesus had a lot of work to do on him. And he's still doing it. He's got a lot of work to do on all of us, hasn't he? May he be gracious in his work on me and merciful. 
and on us all. May God bless his word. Shall we just pray together?